the real purpose of a goal is not to hit the goal. The real purpose is to develop yourself into the type of person who can hit goals, bigger and better goals, beyond what you've even imagined possible, by simply committing at an extraordinary level to give it everything you have until the last possible moment, regardless of your results. So the idea being, if you give it everything you have, but you missed your goal, well, the goal was just a short-term win anyway. Who you became during that process will now serve you for the next goal. And if you don't hit the next goal, but you give it everything you have, you just keep getting better and better and better and more resilient and more disciplined and more consistent. And then eventually you start hitting goal after goal after goal in ways you never thought you could. So the value of hitting in the individual goal is small compared to developing yourself into a goal achiever. That's Hal Elrod, and this episode is absolute fire. Hal's wisdom, enthusiasm, and inspiration ooze out of every minute of this conversation. You'll hear about how Hal broke records as a Cutco sales rep, how he developed an indomitable spirit, and how he even cheated death. Hal will share insights from his international best-selling book, The Miracle Morning, and he'll also teach you the miracle equation, the two decisions you can make that move your biggest goals from possible to probable to inevitable. This was the first interview I ever recorded for this podcast with my longtime friend, the amazing Hal Elrod. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. All right. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm here today with Hal Elrod. Uh, of course, Hal is a Hall of Fame Cutco sales rep, was a Cutco manager, influenced a lot of people, coached people in the company. And uh, most notably, Hal is the best-selling author of the Miracle Morning book series and author of the new book, The Miracle Equation, as well as a speaker who has an international following uh, counting up into the millions. And so uh, really excited to be with Hal today. Hal, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to spend some time with me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Dan. I, uh, you're a good friend, so I'm happy to be with you. Well, so Hal, um, I'd like to be able to start at the beginning with, uh, you know, you were living in Fresno. I know you're a DJ and uh, you decided to start working with Cutco. And, and can you tell us a little bit about uh, why you started working with Cutco and just what type of person you were before you came into uh, this opportunity and, uh, and how some of the early experiences transformed you? Yeah. So it was uh, a mutual or someone that, you know, Teddy Watson, right. Who was a cut rep that I, I went to college with my freshman year and my freshman year. So my dream was to be a radio DJ. I had a radio show when I was 15 in high school, started my own mobile DJ company doing like weddings and stuff. So I was an entrepreneur in high school. And my dream was I want to be a nationally syndicated radio DJ. And uh, so after my first year of college, I got a job on a 97.1 FM in, in Visalia, California. And uh, all year long, Teddy Watson, this, this guy that I went to school with, uh, who became a good friend, he would say, dude, you, Hal, you would be so good at selling Cutco. And uh, I, I would just say, I am, I'm a DJ. Yo, pal, Hal, like, you know, get it straight. I'm, I'm not a salesperson. I have no interest in being in sales. I've never really sold anything. And uh, one day I was with him when he went by the office to get some rope and leather. I met the manager, Jesse Levine, who you, you know, trained, who you worked with. And uh, Jesse was very charismatic, as you know. And, uh, and Jesse, uh, you know, I said, what's this whole selling knives gig that Teddy keeps telling me I should do? And Jesse just explained it in a way that Teddy had never really like broken down the opportunity. He just said, you should sell knives. It's fun. Make money. And Jesse really explained 
that, yeah, you can make unlimited income here, which is pretty cool. But he said, really, it's who you'll become through the process. Like you're going to develop the qualities, the characteristics, the mindset, the habits, the resiliency, the discipline, things that you may or may not have now that are absolutely required to achieve success in, in life. And, and Jesse explained it in a way where I went, well, this is interesting. A, I like no ceiling on my income. Like, you know, I, as a DJ, I'm making like 10 bucks an hour right now. I'm the new guy. And I like the flexibility, but I really like what you're talking about, about who I could become. I never thought in terms of like, who am I becoming based on the choices I'm making and the work I'm doing? And, uh, and so I said, all right, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And my second day of training, and I think this is the most important part of the story. You asked who I was before I started selling Cutco. And I was a very average, mediocre kid. Like throughout grade school, high school, I was a class clown. I got in trouble all the time. I talked a lot. I was not an athlete. I was not, you know, I was a C student. I wasn't an achiever in any way. And in training, I saw the vector opportunity as like, I was like, wow, this is a chance for me to like let go of who I've been my entire life, which is this just screw up kind of class clown kid. And, and, and why don't I actually get serious and get committed to something at a level I've never been committed in? What could happen? Like, who could I become and what could I do with my life if I use the vector opportunity, not just to make some summer cash, but to actually grow and become a better version of myself? And so when I heard about the Fast Art contest, I just went, why not me? Like, why not me? Why don't I try to break the record? Why not? And I went up to Jesse after training and, and you know, I admired the guy and I thought, man, I'm going to tell him I'm going to break the record and he's going to like be so excited for me, but he's going to hug me and I'm going to be the man and, you know... And I waited till everybody left from training, you know, 30 other reps in day two. And I said, hey, Jesse, I said, I, I got something exciting to tell you. He said, yeah, what? What's up, pal? I said, I think I'm going to break the fast start record. And he said, and I thought, you know, I was expecting him to just flip out. And he goes, yeah, we hear a lot of reps say that. Yeah, that's what he said. He said, Hal, do you know how often I hear that? And I said, and I was taken aback just the fact that he wasn't like doing cartwheels yet, you know? And I said, uh, no, he goes, every week in training, someone tells me they want to break the fast start record. He said, do you know how many have done it in my, you know, however many year career at this point? I said, no. He said, nobody. He said, it's one thing to get excited about a goal. It's another thing to maintain unwavering faith right? and put forth extraordinary effort. Like he's nothing to be like committed at a level you've never been committed. He goes, Hal, if you want to break the fast start record, you're going to have to dedicate 10 years of your life to one single mission that, and maybe you be more committed, work harder than you ever worked before in your life. If you're willing to do that, I will guide you. I will lead you. I will support you. But you've got to commit. And Dan, honestly, at that point in my life, I, I had never done anything. But it, I was just, at that point, I was embarrassed. And I go, yeah, yeah, I'm in. You, whatever I do, yeah, I'll do it. Well, I had no idea what I was talking about. And, you know, that night he goes, Hal, you're, you know, everybody in the class is supposed to set up, you know, I don't know, 12 appointments or whatever if you want to break the record, you need to double that. You need to set up 24 appointments. I'm like, oh gosh. And so to keep a long story short, right, to kind of wrap up how this played out, I was committed partly out of embarrassment because I had said I wanted to do it. Now I thought, well, I don't want to go back on what I said, but I really wasn't thinking I could pull this off. I didn't know what I was talking about. I didn't know what I was doing. My first day, I went 0 for 3, which your first day, you're supposed to see the people that are going to buy from you. I saw my grandparents, thought for sure they're going to buy. They told me they were too old for a forever guarantee to be relevant. I'm like, shit, I don't know how to handle that objection. And then I didn't sell anything. And I called Jesse like ready to quit. And he said, there's one of two things you can do, Hal. You can either quit and give in to your, how you feel right now. And I said, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. What, what's behind door number two? He said, Hal, do you want to be successful in life? I said, yeah. He said, well, then the other option is really the only other option for you. He said, you do what a champion would do. You do what a successful person would do, and you realize that there are bad days and there are good days, not just in Cutco, but in life. He said, you had a bad day today. Could have been tomorrow. Could have been the third day. It was today. He said, the law of averages work out if you work hard enough. He said, so if I were you, do what a champion would do. Go home, get on the phone, make even more calls than you were going to make, and go have your first grand day tomorrow. And I was like, uh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Okay. And I went home. I scheduled seven appointments the next day. I went out and I sold $2,768, you know, day two, made up for day one, right? And then the rest of the fast start, I did 62 demos. In 10 all days, I 10 days in right? 10 days, 62 demos in 10 days. I had 40 sales. So my, I was below company averages on, on my closing. I was DJing midnight to 6 a.m. over the weekend. And I, I, I quit on my second weekend. I fell asleep at the wheel and luckily I didn't die. And I, I, you know, I, I quit the DJ job because the Cutco, you know, I was making so much more money. The opportunity was there. 
and uh, very much to the miracle equation, right? Which the miracle equation we're going to talk about into today, but the miracle equation always plays out in miraculous fashion. It never goes like it never, I feel like the universe tests people for how committed are you? And you have to prove that you're committed until the last possible moment, overcoming all your fears and all your self-doubt and all the obstacles and all the hurdles and all the setbacks. And it's always like in the final hour, it's at the buzzer. It's like when the miracle happens. And for me, I went into my last day. The record at that time was $12,000, the most anyone had sold in the fast start. And uh, I went into the la- I broke the record on the last day. I had a $4,000 day. I was a grand away into get- going into the last day. I sold, I did six demos, four sales, $4,000 and ended at $15,000 for the fast start. And that was really, it made me realize that, you know, that Tony Robbins quote that it's in our moments of decision that our destiny is shaped. It was on day two of training when whatever the motivation was, was partly out of embarrassment and ego. I made a decision, Jesse, Jesse made me give him his word. Hell, if you give me your word that you'll do everything you can to break the record, you can do it. And I made a decision. I will do everything. I'm giving you my word. I'm committed. And when you do that, the rest works itself out. Yeah, that's awesome, Hal. That's awesome. You know, one of the things I've admired about you is what I would call an indomitable spirit. And you can see the makings of that. It's sort of hatched during that period right there. And then if we fast forward, I believe it's about a year and a half forward, December 1999, uh, you had an experience with a car accident where that indomitable spirit really came into play and was evident. And, I, and I'd love for you to speak a little bit about that and what happened. Yes, thank you. I, I gave a speech at a Cutco division meeting, uh, NorCal, and I got my first standing ovation, which that was like a, a memorable part of that night is everybody, like all my, you know, all my peers stood up and applauded. And I was like, holy crap, this is, you know, wow, this is cool. And uh, maybe this motivational speaker thing might work out someday. I don't know. And then I got into my, I had just bought a brand new Ford Mustang with my Cutco commissions, right? My first new car, bought it with my own money, got into my brand new Ford Mustang and driving home at 1130 that night, I was hit head on by a drunk driver at 80 miles an hour, big full-size Chevy truck, much larger than my little Ford Mustang. We hit head on. He's on the wrong side of the freeway. He was on the wrong side of the freeway coming down. He thought he was in the slow lane. But he was in my fast lane, right? He was on the. He had gotten on an off ramp on my for the car where I would have gotten off. That's where he got on, and he merged all the way over to the right because he thought that was the slow lane. He had a couple beers and he was in the fast lane. I don't remember the car coming at me. I don't remember headlights. I don't remember any of it. I, I suffered brain damage that night. But he hit me head on, and when we hit head on, that wasn't the worst of it. We hit head on, so you can see like it was off center. So it wasn't the two cars hitting in the middle, which I think I don't think you could like really live from that. But we hit head on, slightly off centered on the two driver's side. If this is my car, that sent my car spinning. And the car that was, so I spun and they were, they crashed into my door at 70 miles an hour and broke the left side of my body. It crushed the left side of my body instantaneously. I broke 11 bones on the left side. My femur, the biggest bone in the human body, broke in half and one half speared out the side of my thigh. My pelvis was crushed between the center console. It broke three separate places. I snapped my humerus bone in half, came out behind my elbow. You can see my elbow. I mean, it's a mess. I shattered my elbow, severed the nerve in my forearm. My eye socket was destroyed so bad. This is all made of three metal titanium plates. My ear was almost completely severed. It was hanging on by about a half of an inch. And the ceiling buffed and sliced my head open. And I began losing a lot of blood. And an hour later, when they cut me out of the car with the jaws of life, I had bled to death. And I was clinically dead right there on the freeway. They rushed me onto the medevac helicopter, hooked me up to IV, pulled out the defibrillator, started shocking me back to life. And after six minutes of being clinically dead without a heartbeat, they revived me, rushed me to the hospital. I spent six days in a coma, flatlined twice more, went through emergency surgeries, like 11 surgeries or nine surgeries, something like that, and woke up from the coma six days later to face this reality that the doctor said, I would never walk again, which I don't care what age you are, but at age 20, I was like, man, I got a lot of goals that involve walking. That's not, not good. And number two, I had permanent brain damage, and uh, which I have. My wife will vouch for that. It still shows up frequently. It was really bad back then. But uh, the brain damage caused me to A, have like no short-term memory, and B, I said anything that I thought. That was very inappropriate in funny ways usually. But I decided... You know, I applied this thing called the miracle equation, which I've mentioned that a few times, but the doctor said I would never walk again. And I decided that there were two possibilities. Number one, they are right. And I will never walk again. And I decided if I am in a wheelchair the rest of my life, how would I live my life at that? Like, what, what, what would life be like? And I thought, well, I don't have to let the wheelchair define me. I don't have to let it determine my quality of life. 
And I, I, I told my dad and I told the doctors, look, if I'm in a wheelchair the rest of my life, I said, I promise you, I will be the happiest, most grateful person that you've ever seen in a wheelchair. Because either way, I'm in a wheelchair, I thought. It, you know, why let that make me an unhappy person, a miserable person, just because I can't walk? I thought, I can roll around in a wheelchair, and I can just be happy that I'm alive, right? I said, but the second possibility is, and I don't even know if this is possible, no one does, I will walk again. And it's not likely, which is why the doctors are not trying to get my hopes up. They're saying, look, you're probably never going to walk again. But nobody really knows. No one knows how I'm going to heal, if I'm going to heal. I don't even know. So what I decided, Dan, and it's one of those important lessons we can, I think that we can learn is I accepted the worst case scenario. Dying would have been the worst case scenario probably, but, but for me, it was, I'm in a wheelchair the rest of my life. That's the worst case scenario. I don't want that. However, if that ends up coming to pass, I am at peace with it. Therefore, it's not going to affect me. So therefore, I have no fear of the worst case scenario. And then I thought, but now that I've accepted it and it has no control over my emotions or even my energy or attention. I'm putting all my energy into the second possibility of walking again. And I started visualizing walking again. I was praying about it every day. I was thinking about it. I was talking about it. My consciousness was I had accepted the worst case scenario. It was focused on the best case scenario. And one week, actually two weeks after the coma, but just a week after I was told I would never walk again, the doctors came in with routine x-rays. They said, we don't know how to explain this, Hal, but your body is healing at this incredible rate. And we're actually going to let you take your first step tomorrow in therapy. So it went from, you're never going to walk again to three weeks after my bones broke in half and I died. I was in a wheelchair taken into these parallel bars and helped up and I took my first few steps. And, you know, four weeks later, I left the hospital. I actually jumped back into a push period, which you were a big part of your memory of that. We can talk about that if you want. But, uh, but yeah, that, that was the, the accident. And I really believe that we are in control more than we realize of our mind, our body, our happiness, our spirit, our energy. Our results, our effort, I mean, so much, you know, and I think that we can either have a victim mentality where it's like, well, life just happens to me, or you go, no, 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 no. This is what I want for my life, and I'm going to create it, and nothing and no one is going to change that. And it might not happen exactly as I want. In fact, it never does. Usually takes longer, it's usually harder, but when you're committed, there is always a way to achieve anything that you want. And it, it, I saw it with the fast start, I saw it with walking again. You know, I saw it with the Miracle Morning book. I saw it with my cancer last year. I mean, on and on and on. I just realized that we have the ability to, to achieve anything that we want. Wow, that, that's uh, an awesome lesson, Hal. I love what you said about being willing to come to terms with a, a worst case scenario, and that eliminates the fear of that. And once you have that fear eliminated, you can obviously focus on what it is that you really want to have happen and bringing that into reality in your life. And it was amazing to see you do that. And uh, for those of you who are part of the Cutco uh, audience, it, this accident happened in early December. And, you know, in, in January, we have our annual conference that kicks off uh, our new year. And there's a push period that usually happens from early January through mid-January. And uh, this is how being told he wouldn't be able to walk again, you know, in early December. And somewhere circa January 20th or whatever the date was of our conference, he was on stage on his own finished fourth in the Western region in the push period among all the sales reps for those two weeks within, you know, not even two months after the accident occurred, six weeks after the accident occurred. So it's a testament to Hal's indomitable spirit and, and uh, some of the early lessons that uh, he's learned in his life. Damn, um, real quick. I just have to share this. I don't know if you know this, but I mean, I couldn't drive to appointments. My dad had to drive me to appointments. My left hand where I had severed the nerve this was the only motion I had. So like, I couldn't even like hold the rope or pick up. And I had to like, be like, dad, come over here. Help me with this. Right. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, the, you know, and, and I was exhausted because my body was broken and healing. And it was the hardest thing I ever had to do. And when I went to the conference, you know, the first night, Bruce Goodman or, you know, the region president, Western region president, he did a whole closing speech about people overcoming obstacles and making the impossible happen. And I didn't know this was going to happen, but he ended the speech with, he said, I've got one more story for you, and this one's close to home. And he told my story, and he ended by saying, I don't know how this is true, but I heard a rumor that Hal, that you just heard about, died two months ago, sold for this push period. <laughs> back tomorrow during the count-up. And so I, and I went up there for the count-up. I had, I had a big four-pronged cane, and you know, I, uh, hundreds of people went up, and they all kept you know, walking forward as the reports got higher and higher and higher. And I had sold, I think, six, seven thousand dollars. 
And one of my buddy or Dan, one of my, like, I never forget this moment. There were people standing in front of me and you were sitting in the front row. And as a number got called, someone that was right in front of me, covering me up, walked in front and, and went to the mic. And you, for the first time, saw that I was still standing up there. And, uh, and yeah, at least this is my memory. And you mouthed, no effing way. <laughs> and like, that was a moment of pride for me, man. I'm telling you, like, I never forgot that. Like, I was just like, yeah, yeah, effing right, you know? And, um, but because it was the hardest thing I ever did, you know? And, and so it was like, to see that you, somebody I respected and, you know, really like saw what I had to do. And yeah. Yeah. So that was a, that was a, one of the proudest moments of my life was that push period. And, uh, and then what happened? That's awesome. That's great. Hal. Super yeah. cool. Super cool. Hey, so you flashed, uh, the miracle equation. Check this out. I have got all yeah. three of your books right there. <laughs> That's awesome. uh, so, you know, after this, uh, uh, experience, Hal went on, became a hall of fame sales rep with Cutco. And then I know you spent some time in management. Then you left Cutco. You did some coaching as some people that were in Cutco. You experienced some struggles during, uh, the, the, I guess what we call great recession, 08, 09, you experienced some real struggles in your life and business. And somewhere along those lines, you hatched the idea for the miracle morning. I've got that right here. You hatched the idea for the miracle morning and tell us about, uh, formulating the ideas, writing the book and just your experience in, in taking this book to international bestseller status. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So the miracle morning was not a book idea. It was a, it was, I mean, almost everything that I do teach, write about, speak about, right. Is it something that I have utilized in my own life, you know, and then grown from it or benefited from it. And then I went, Oh, I need, I have to teach this to other people. You know, I, I feel a sense of responsibility. And in 2007, eight, nine, when the U S economy was crashing, I crashed with it. And it was the hardest, that was the hardest time in my life, like harder than the car accident. And when I talk about that in the Miracle Morning book, and you know, there's I, there's a heading in there that says why debt was worse than death, and um, meaning you think you know it can't be much. That's pretty much your rock bottom. Is you get hit by a drunk driver, you die, you're told you're never going to walk again. Well, when that happened, I was surrounded by support. Right, I had my mom and dad and my sister were staying in the hospital. I had so much love and support. When the economy was crashing, it was me and my my you know now my wife, but my then my fiance. And I was just failing miserably and terrified. And there was nobody to take care of me. There were no nurses and doctors feeding me and bathing me. And, you know, it was just, it was, it was terrifying. And keeping kind of a long story short, it was actually our, your uh, protege, John Berghoff, who I called John after the six month downward spiral where I had lost over half of my clients, therefore half of my income. I couldn't pay my mortgage. The bank took my house. It ruined my credit. I, I stopped exercising. I, I, my body fat percentage tripled. I was literally physically, mentally, emotionally, financially at the lowest point in my life. And I called John. I'm like, John, I haven't told this to anybody because I'm kind of, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of, I don't know, embarrassed. I'm just, I just don't know what to do. I don't want to burden people with my problems. I said, but I'm desperate right now and I need your help. And you're one of the smartest guys I know. And I told him that, you know, I'm failing. My business is failing. What do I do? And he said, let me ask you a couple of questions, Hal. He said, number one, are you exercising every day? And I got kind of pissed. I go, what the hell does that have to do with anything I just told you? I just poured my heart out. And you're asking me if I'm exercising? He said, Hal, I'm serious. If you're not exercising every day and you're just sitting in your office feeling depressed and scared, he goes, exercise is what you need to put yourself in a peak physical, mental, and emotional, and even spiritual state so that you can rise to the occasion and you know, be in that peak state to, to solve your problems. I said, okay, that makes sense. He said, second question, are you engaging every day in personal development? And I said, not really, man. I'm in scarcity mm -hmm. mode. I just wake up. I go into my office. I work until like nine at night when I'm exhausted. I watch an hour of TV and I go to bed, right? And I just repeat that process. And he said, Hal, if you're not engaging in personal development, kind of like the physical you know, aspect, like you're not gaining the knowledge that you need and the beliefs and the mindset to solve your problem. He said, if I were you, I'd combine those two and every morning... Uh, go for a run or a jog or a walk and walk that way you put yourself in a peak physical state and you get blood in your brain. And while you're on that walk, listen to a self-help audio, a business audio book, a podcast, something like that. And I was a little bit turned off because I was calling him for like step-by-step money-making advice, right? I'm like, yeah, no, don't, don't teach me how to fish. Give me a freaking fish, right? Like, you know, tell me how to set up a website that's going to make me money or something. I don't need to like go for runs and stuff. But I was desperate. I was like, all right, I'll do it. And the next morning I went on a run. I listened to a Jim Rohn audio. I think John recommended. 
one of your, and I, I give, you know, I always talk about everything and I learn things from Jim Rohn through Dan, my mentor that learned from your mentor, Jim. And I mean, John learned them from you and you learned them from Jim and so on and so forth. And Jim learned from whoever, but here's the quote. And it became the catalyst for the miracle morning. And it's foundational part of my life. Jim Rohn said, and I might be paraphrasing here, but he said, your level of success will seldom exceed your level of personal development because success is something you attract by the person you become. Mm. And in that moment, I adopted a foundational philosophy. I went, wait a minute, this is why I'm not where I want to be in my life. And I believe this is where the reason that 99% of society are not where they want to be is I realized I'm not dedicating time, at least not a significant amount of time every day to my personal development. Therefore, I am not becoming the person that I need to be who is qualified to achieve and maintain the success that I want in my life. And this is how I quantified it. And I think this is helpful, uh, at least for me. If we're measuring success on a scale of one to 10, right, Dan, we all want level 10 success. You know, we want level 10 in every area, not just our business, but level 10 health, level 10 happiness, level 10 energy, level 10 relationships, level, we want level 10. That's one thing human beings have in common is we have an innate drive and desire to aspire to fulfill our potential and live the best that life has to offer. Yet, like 1% of society actually has that life, you know? So we all want level 10 success, but I realized most of us have not dedicated ourselves to becoming a level 10 person. So if our level of is below a 10, which for most of us, like for me, it was like at a two or a three. This is the disconnect for society. This is what we want our life to be. This is who we are committed to being. And we will always have a disconnect. And that's why most people are down here looking up at people that are successful going, why can't I have what they have? Why is life so hard for me? It's like, well, here's the secret. You've got to dedicate time every day to becoming a level 10 person through daily personal development. And when you become a level 10 person, level 10 success meets you head on. And it's not an all or nothing thing. When you go from a level two to a level four, you achieve level from level two to level four success. Then when you become a level six, level five, right? Your level of success always parallels your level of personal development. And so my epiphany was, I need to go create the most extraordinary personal development ritual in the history of humanity because I'm tired of, of struggling. And I went home and I Googled best personal development practices and I came up with a list of six. And it was affirmations, visualization, exercise, reading, journaling, and meditation. And I went, which of these is the best one? Like, I I don't want to mess around. I want to change my life fast. Which of these is the one? And as I go back and I'm reading all these articles online and entrepreneur.com and Oprah, I realized none of these is necessarily better. They're just different. But, But as I was doing research, you find that you are hard pressed to find a millionaire or a billionaire or a CEO or an Olympian or a world champion that doesn't swear by at least one of these six practices. But then my epiphany was, what if I did all of these? What if I woke up tomorrow and I meditated for 10 minutes and I did affirmations for 10, visualization for 10, exercise for 10, reading for 10, journaling for 10? What if I did the six most timeless proven personal development practices in the history of humanity all in one hour? And I woke up the next morning, even though I wasn't a morning person, but I was like, I, I don't have any other time. There's no other time where I can really fit an extra hour in. So I'm going to get up an hour earlier and give that a shot. And what was surprising, first and foremost, if you're not a morning person, join the club. I was actually, I had never woken up so easy because I had clarity of something I was going to do that was going to change my life. And it made it exciting to wake up. Like I woke up like a kid on Christmas. I was like, oh, it's morning already. I, I did all six practices. I sucked at all of them, Dan, because I didn't know how to meditate. I was like, literally half the time was spent Googling how do you meditate again, right? What do I do? And within that morning, even though my life was still a mess, I was 50 grand in credit card debt. I, my house was being taken away by the bank. I was in the worst shape of my life. One hour later, I felt unstoppable. And I thought, if I do this every day, it's only a matter of time. And I thought maybe six to 12 months, it was two months later, I doubled my income. I went from being in the worst shape of my life physically to committing to run a 52 mile ultra marathon. I had never run more than a mile, which was only the past PE class in high school, right? And my depression went away literally within the first few days. And I told my wife, I go, sweetheart, it's been two months since I've been doing this morning routine. It feels like a freaking miracle how my life has changed. And she goes, this is your, your miracle morning. And I go, yes, I go, it's my miracle morning. And, uh, and that was the idea. And I started to all my coaching clients and every single one of them went from how I'm not a morning person to, well, you know, this is pretty convincing that how you start your day is, is such an important part of who you become and what you create for your life. I'll give it a try. And every single one of them came back a week later on our call and said, Hal, I had the best week in my career. Most of them were cut corrupts at the time. I just had the best week in my career. I started running again. I read a self-help book. I, like, and I went, 
that was when the, the, the breakthrough happened, the light bulb went off and I went, wait a minute, this miracle morning thing changed my life so fast. And I was not a morning person my entire life. If it worked for every single one of my clients and they were not morning people, this could work for anyone and it could change the world if I get it in the world's hands. And that was about seven years ago, eight years ago or so. And now the book's been read by 1.7 million people that grows by over 10,000 people a month. It's been translated into 34 languages and spun off into a series of, you know, a dozen books. And uh, I am now just uh, in awe as I watch every day and we get emails and messages from hundreds of people a day saying the miracle morning changed my life in ways that I, I, I never even could have imagined. That's awesome. Such a simple concept of daily personal growth. Uh, you know, the idea of getting better every day is a, a principle that I think people can conceptualize and realize, like, if I just get a little bit better every day, look at what's going to happen over three years, five years, 10 years in my life. Like, totally. I can accomplish anything. So I understand the six practices that you promote in the Miracle Morning. You, you use the acronym of SAVERS, silence for, for meditation, and then affirmations, visualizations, exercise, reading, and then scribing for journaling. Yeah. Um, the one that has really struck me, Hal, that I've gotten a lot out of listening to you talk about is affirmations, because I previously thought affirmations was like, you know, tell yourself, you know, Brian Tracy used to always say, I like pump myself, yourself up. myself. I like my, yeah, sort of <laughs> pump yourself up kind of stuff. But your affirmations are a lot different and they really speak to people developing a clear vision of what life they want, of what goals they want to achieve, of who they want to be. And the reminders, the repetition of that really reinforces their motivation. Now, can you speak yeah. a little bit to the power of the affirmations? The affirmations kind of have a bad rap because what you just mentioned, right? And those affirmations, there is actually value. You know, if I'm feeling down, I'll just tell myself, hey, like I'll look in the mirror and be like, I'm a good person. I deserve to be happy. And that like reminds me of just, yeah, that's true. But here's the deal that like I am a very, and I know you are too. I'm a very results oriented person. I think most people are. Most people want results. They, you know, like if you affirm, I am a millionaire, I am a money magnet money flows to me. Like that doesn't change your bank account balance. You might feel like you might look at your bank account balance and it's negative and you're like, Oh God, I feel depressed. So then you tell yourself these fluffy affirmations to feel better. And that's great for a few minutes of feeling better, but I would rather do affirmations that actually align my psychology and therefore then my behavior to do things that actually increase my income and my savings and my net worth. So that when I look at the bank account balance after doing affirmations for a month, I don't just say, well, I felt better for a few minutes every day. I actually go, oh, my income increased. Those are affirmations that I can get excited about, right? So affirmations, the way they've been taught for as long as I can remember, it is the problem. It's the downfall. Number one is we're taught to use affirmations that are either completely lying to ourselves, right? Where if you, again, using the money example, like if you want to have money or wealth, you just say, I am a millionaire. And the idea is you, you trick yourself into believing it. I am a millionaire. I am a millionaire. I am a millionaire. But the problem is, if you say that and it's not true, we're smart. We know the truth and the truth will always prevail. So lying to yourself is never the optimum strategy. So when you go, I am a millionaire, your subconscious goes, no, you're not. <laughs> right? Like, and you go, no, 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 shut up. I'm doing my affirmations. I am a millionaire. <laughs> it's like, dude, you're not even a thousandaire, bro. Who are you kidding? And you're like, stop it. I'm trying to do affirmations. So that's the first yeah, problem. Jim Rohn would say, when, you know, if you're broke, the best thing you can affirm is, I am broke. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, yeah, that, you that, yeah, yeah. That should motivate you. That's so true. Thank you. Thank you. So the other problem that affirmations is they're taught to use this flowery, passive language that makes you feel better, like as if savior, the savior's on its way. So another financial affirmation that's very popular is, I am a money magnet. Money flows to me effortlessly and in abundance. And no, that's not how money works, right? You, you're not a magnet. You actually have, you become a magnet if you work your ass off, then money will come to you because you're adding value to the world and people will pay you for that value. But, but affirming that money's flowing to you magically because you have a vision board on your wall is detrimental to your financial bottom line, right? So the way that I teach affirmations is four very practical steps. Number one, don't affirm what you want. We don't get what we want in life unless we're committed to it. So affirm it as I am committed. If I'm be a millionaire, that's great. But don't say, I am a millionaire. Say, I am committed to becoming a millionaire. If you want to get even better, get specific. I'm committed to becoming a millionaire by the time I'm 40 or whatever, right? So second step is, why is it deeply meaningful to you? Articulate that. So I am committed to becoming a millionaire so I can buy fancy cars. Might not be a deep enough why to get you up in the morning to do what's necessary. I am committed to becoming a millionaire so that I can provide financial security and freedom for my family. Once I made that my affirmation, I want to be a millionaire, Dan, 
when I was 20, I was a cut kill rep. And I'm like, dude, I'll be a millionaire by I'm 25. Turned 25, I wasn't even a hundred thousand there, you know? And I was like, all right, by the time I'm 30. And then I turned 30, still didn't even have a hundred grand in the bank. And I'm like, what in the hell is wrong with this? What, what am I doing wrong? And then I had my daughter when I was 30. And then I affirmed, I literally, that was my affirmation is I'm committed to becoming a millionaire within 35 so that I can provide financial freedom and security for my wife and my daughter who are counting on me for that. And that's when it actually happened. Once I got a deeply meaningful why that made it so I was serious and willing to do whatever it took. The third step is the what. What are the specific actions that you've got to take to ensure that you achieve whatever your goal is, whatever you're affirming? And number four is when will you take those actions? So running through those, I am committed to blank. I'm committed to becoming a millionaire by the time I'm blank age so that I can provide financial freedom for my family. In order to do that, right, step three, I will dedicate one hour a day, five days a week, and then step four from you know five to 6 a.m., reading books and implementing books on how to become wealthy. There you go. You want to achieve any goal? Here's a simple two-step formula. Read a book from someone that's done it already and then do what they tell you to do in the book. You can't fail if you do those two things and you don't stop doing them until you get there. Awesome, Hal. That, that's great. That's great. I really appreciate hearing your, your explanation of the affirmations. So look, we've got a short time remaining and uh, we've referenced the miracle equation. I've got that here as well. Uh, beautiful been book. This, been reading this here <laughs> over the last uh, week or so. Yeah, very well designed, beautiful book, Hal. Nice work. So tell us, what is it? What is the miracle equation? So the funny thing about this, so Jesse Levine, right, my mentor, my manager, he was out in Austin visiting me. He came by the house. Uh, at, he was in South by Southwest a few weeks ago. And, uh, and we were just, we were catching up. You know, we, we talked like once a month, but we, we had, you know, we were catching up. And he goes, so you, you got a new book coming out? What's your book? And I said, oh, it's called The Miracle Equation. And like, I didn't even connect the dots. He goes, you mean the cut cut top that you used to get? <laughs> Oh yeah, I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Cutco talk. He goes, Are you kidding me? It's a book, like a traditionally published book. He goes, Could you have ever imagined when you were 20 years old giving that talk that it'd be read by like a million people? Or you know, I was like, never in a million years. So the way the miracle equation came to be, I was actually in your division. And uh, I love this story. And if you're a Cutco rep, this is this may be the most valuable story that you ever hear to actually skyrocket your sales. Because I've taught this to dozens of other reps, and they've went out and had their you know surpassed their sales they've ever done before. So I was in Frank Gordabody's office, and I had two twenty thousand dollar push periods back to back. And I was one of only a handful of reps in the history of the company to have done that. Bergoff and I were competing, and I think we both did it, and and very few other people, if any, had ever done that. And I, I went, I moved offices to Frank's. I wanted to have my third. I wanted to be the first rep to my knowledge. I was going to set a record and be the first rep to ever have three $20,000 push periods in a row at that point. This was, you know, 18 years ago, right? Crazy how time flies then. But, uh, and now keep in mind the first two push periods that I had sold $20,000 and, and we tend to shortchange ourselves, right? When we achieve extraordinary results, what we tend to do is discount the results based on the luck that occurred on those journeys, right? Because every successful person on the planet, you, you almost never find someone that doesn't speak of all the lucky, serendipitous, chance opportunities that people that came into their life, they could have never predicted. And if it wasn't for, you know, these handful of resources or people or opportunities, they go, I would have never achieved this thing I achieved, right? So for me, I'm looking back at the first two $20,000 push periods. I'm like, man, if that lady wouldn't have bought two ultimate sets for me and that lady's friend wouldn't have showed up randomly on the demo and then bought a set as like, I would have never hit 20K of those times. So I really felt like, dude, I got lucky. The odds of me doing this a third time in a row are not very good. And you know, a push period is 14 days to sell 20 grand. So I spent the, the week or two leading up to the push period, like getting myself psyched up, like, all right, I'm, I'm committed. I can do it. I'm going to sell $20,000 push. And I go to the team meeting. So this is a few days before the push period starts. And Frank says, hey, everybody, I know you guys are excited for push period. Uh, I don't know if you heard, but they had to move the conference back four days. So we only have 10 days for push, not 14. So my heart sinks into my stomach and I raise my hand and I go, Frank, hey, um, please tell me that this push period doesn't count <laughs> like as an official push period, right? Like for records and stuff. Cause I'm not getting the full 14 days. He said, Hal, no, sorry. Unfortunately, this, this still counts. So I drive home that night and I'm, I go, what am I going to do? Like it felt close to impossible to sell 20 grand in, in, in 14 days. 
for to take away 30% of my runway basically and cut it down to 10, that feels like a miracle. That feels impossible. And so that night I'm, I'm tossing and turning, falling asleep. I have my journal on my nightstand and I go, I remembered something you taught me, which again was, I believe from the great Jim Rohn. And it's one of the greatest lessons I've ever learned. And, but I had learned it recently from you. So I hadn't applied it yet. And I went, the lesson that was that the real purpose of a goal is not to hit the goal. The real purpose is to develop yourself into the type of person who can hit goals, bigger and better goals beyond what you've even imagined possible by simply committing at an extraordinary level to give it everything you have until the last possible moment, regardless of your results. So the idea being, if you give it everything you have, but you miss your goal, well, that, 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 the goal was just a short-term win anyway. Who you became during that process will now serve you for the next goal. And if you don't hit the next goal, but you give it everything you have, you just keep getting better and better and better and more resilient and more disciplined and more consistent. And, right? and then eventually, you start hitting goal after goal after goal in ways you never thought you could. So the value of hitting in the individual goal is small compared to developing yourself into a goal achiever, right? So I thought, okay, I could buy into that. So let me think. So that would mean if I committed to give it everything I have for these 10 days, even if I don't hit the goal, I'll still become a better version of the guy that I am right now, having never tried at that level. So I thought I can do that. I can buy into that. So I, I broke it down. I went, okay, I've got to sell two grand a day for 10 days in a row, right? And again, you have to remember too, I mean, the numbers are so much bigger now. Back then, I'm sure that was right. That didn't, if I sold two grand in a day, I celebrated because that was a big day, right? So to do it 10 days every day in a row is not very likely. And I then reverse engineered the process. So I did, in the military, they call this planning for contingencies, right? Where whenever you have a goal or a mission, you ask yourself, what's likely to go wrong? What could go wrong? What's likely to go wrong? So that I can be aware of it and then I can have, plans in place, strategies to overcome it if it and when it happens, right? So I asked, well, what, what could prevent me from reaching this goal? I thought number one is self-doubt or fear, right? If I, you know, I know from selling Cutco, you have bad days, right? You have days that don't go according to plan. Like my first day of the fast start, I thought, well, if I'm not on track for the goal, I'm probably going to get discouraged and I'm going to lose steam, lose my drive. So how am I going to handle that? So I thought, okay, my first decision is I have to commit to maintaining unwavering faith that I can reach my goal regardless of how far behind I am at any given moment. And that faith played out in very simple internal dialogue. I call it my miracle mantra. I just said, whenever I would have the doubt of like, oh my gosh, I had a no sale, I had a bad day, I didn't sell anything today, I'm not, I'm not on track. I would, instead of letting that, that seed of doubt, which by the way, when we have a seed of doubt, we focus on it. Our attention is water right? It waters the seed of doubt and that doubt grows from a seed into a sprite and it gets big and it consumes our, our psychology, mm. our consciousness. And we go, now I'm not, there's no point in even trying. I'm so far off. I can't do it. What I did is I just took that seed of doubt and I, I moved it to the side and I overrode fear with faith. And I went, no, 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 no. I know that I might fail, but I am committed to giving it everything I have until the last possible moment, regardless of my results. There's no other option. That was my miracle mantra. I am committed no matter what to give it everything I have until the last moment, no other option. And so I overrode the doubt. The second decision, I thought, I've got to put forth extraordinary effort. Because the second thing that's going to stop me is once I'm not on track for my goal, it's human nature is to stop pushing so hard. Well, you go, ah, I'm just setting myself up for failure, humiliation, like I'm not even on track. So I thought two decisions I've got to make. I've got to maintain unwavering faith until the last moment. And I have to put forth extraordinary effort until the last moment, regardless of my results along the way. Now, Dan, I mentioned earlier that when you apply the miracle equation, it almost always works out in miraculous fashion. It, it, it never is like, oh, smooth sailing. The first week, keep in mind, do some simple math, everybody. I needed to sell two grand a day for seven days in a row for 14 grand for the first week. That would give me three more days, to sell the rest of the six grand. I went in with my, after my first week with my orders, I was not at 14,000. I was at $7,000 in sales. And so I was 13 grand away with three days. So imagine how do you rationalize that in your head where you go, I just gave it everything I had for seven days and I sold seven grand. And somehow I'm supposed to keep giving it everything I have and sell 13 grand in three days. Like that doesn't quite compute. So when I turned in my offices, my orders to Frank, he goes, Hal, what do you get for push? How's it going? And I told him, he said, oh, that's okay, man. Hey, you gave it a valiant effort. Why don't you lower your goal to 10 grand? You know, you got three more days. You sold a grand a day for the last seven days. Go have another $10,000 push. It's a respectful push. 
I said, Frank, I don't think I explained this to you in the beginning, but that's not an option for me. My only option is I am committed to giving it everything I have to sell $20,000 in the next, in 10 days, no matter what, there's no other option. That means I'm committed to give it everything I have to sell $13,000 in three days. And he goes, you really think you can do that? I said, of course not. But that doesn't change that I'm committed to it. Right. And, you, and it's an important distinction, you guys, that you don't actually have to believe you're going to reach a goal to give it everything you have to reach the goal. And, you know, you look at like, I look at the best athletes in the world, like a Michael Jordan, right? Or a Kobe Bryant or LeBron James, or, you know, I'm just thinking of basketball, but I feel like Curry, yep. Curry, Durant, Clay there Thompson. You go. I, yeah, I should have, I should have thought in terms of the Bay area. Yeah. Um, Curry, Durant. So right when the ball hits the average player's hand and they shoot it, if they miss Dan, now a seed of what is planted? Doubt. Doubt. Uh-oh. Maybe I'm off. If the ball hits their hands again and they have the courage to shoot a second time, if they miss again, that doubt is bro. It, it, it expands. When the ball hits their hands the third time, usually they hesitate and they pass it to somebody else. And that's how they play the rest of the game. But the best players in the world, they live by the miracle equation. They have decided that they have unwavering faith that they'll make every shot they ever take. So that's why you see the best players in the world miss 17 shots in a row. And they keep shooting. And you see what a champion is made of when the, in the fourth quarter, after they f- sucked it up for three quarters, they go score more points in the fourth quarter than they made all three and, and more than anyone made in the game, right? So that's the mindset. The miracle equation isn't a one-time decision for a goal. This is a fundamental way of living where you approach every day, every opportunity, every challenge through the lens of unwavering faith that you can achieve anything you, you're committed to. And you put forth extraordinary effort regardless of your results. And that's how you live. And here's what happened. Those last three days, I sold $10,000. I was at $17,000 for push. It was amazing. And I was about to be like, well, that was it. I had to meet the next morning at the office to carpool to the conference. And I, I was done. And then I thought my mantra entered my head. I went, wait a minute. I've been saying that I am committed to giving it everything I have until the last possible moment. The last possible moment technically hasn't arrived. I thought I could squeeze in two appointments in the morning tomorrow and then drive straight to the conference if my manager would be okay with that. I called Frank. Frank's like, well, you're a leader. You know, of course I want you there, but gosh, Hal, I know how hard you've been working. I'll I'll let you do it. I scheduled two appointments for the morning. First appointment, no show. You have to be kidding me. I'm like, I'm I'm dying inside. I'm like, because driving to my first appointment, I'm going, all right. I'm going to do it. I don't know how, but three grand. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. My first appointment, I'm knocking on the door. She's not there. I'm crying, right? I go to my last appointment, last chance, knock on the door. Dan, the miracle equation is for miracles. I knock on the door and the woman that answered had a very heavy European accent, not the woman I talked to on the phone. I said, hi, is Mary here? She said, no, she left for the day. She, she, uh, she's gone. I said, no, 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 no. She's my last appointment. Is there, uh, can you call her? Can you, and she calls her and she goes, she's three hours away. I go, you've got to be kidding me. She goes, can I help you with something? And it turns out she's the sister-in-law on vacation from Europe for her brother's 50th birthday party. I'm thinking the odds of this woman buying $3,000 of knives from me on her vacation to fly back to Europe are not very good. <laughs> so I said, no, ma'am, no, thank you. And I was about to quit. And then my voice Part of uh, the miracle equation is you literally reprogram yourself to be a freaking savage, right? Like to do whatever it takes. And I went, wait a minute. I committed to give it everything I have to the last moment. And this woman just asked if she could help. Now, statistically, I think the odds are about 1% that she's going to buy something, but I have to try. I commit it. I have to. I went in, I did the best demo I could do thinking it was pointless, but committed. She tells me two things down that tell me how this isn't a miracle. Number one, she says, Al, it's so interesting that you're showing me high quality kitchen cutlery. My husband and I were just looking at a set of Hinkles in Europe back home before we came out here and we were almost going to buy it, but something inside us said we should wait until after our trip to America. I said, okay. Second thing she tells me, you know, my brother's 50th birthday party is coming up next week and we don't have a gift for him. Our family's been racking our brain trying to find something monumental. Dan, what do you think his passion was? Cooking? Uh, Cooking. Kitchen? Wow. I was $3,000 away from my goal. The ultimate set at that time, which was our biggest set, was $1,500. She bought two ultimate sets. 
one for her and one for her brother. And I ended up at $20,017. And the miracle <laughs> equation was born. And I taught it to a dozen of cut corrupts that I was coaching. And 11 out of 12 of them went out and had their biggest push period ever. Most broke records. Many had $20,000 push periods. And my conviction in the formula grew. And then I stepped back and studied the world's most successful people in all walks of life. And I realized, oh, these are the two fundamental decisions that they live by. They establish faith that they can do something they've never done before, that they have no evidence they can do. And then they put forth extraordinary effort while they maintain that faith for as long as it takes. And they create lives that other people marvel at. And I'm here to tell you, you no longer have to marvel at the world's best. You now have the formula to join them. That's so awesome, Hal. You know, I love uh, where you talk in the book about how you cultivate that faith. Sometimes it comes from other people's results. Sometimes it comes from breaking down your goals. I also love in the book where you talk about what you call the inherent human conflict, which is what keeps people from continuing that extraordinary effort all throughout their goals uh, and how people can turn that around and uh, can, can begin to leverage the miracle equation to achieve miracles in their own life. Uh, you've somebody who's achieved many miracles in your life, both personally and professionally. I know the, the Vector Cutco world admires you. Uh, you're admired all over the world for what you've contributed. You know, the theme of this whole show is changing lives, selling knives. And uh, really, there's no one who's changing lives uh, more so than you are across the world that uh, has had the Cutco experience and taken some early lessons from that and leveraged those uh, throughout the world. So we're so excited to be able to count you as uh, one of our alumni. And Hal, I thank you for taking some time with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. I always say that I am who I am 50% because of my mom and dad and 50% because of my Cutco experience and family. And, you know, that's a pretty, a pretty, pretty you know, pretty, pretty significant uh, contribution to, to my life. And so, yeah, I'm grateful for you. You've been a mentor to me and a friend and grateful to the whole Cutco Vector world. And if you're watching this, I, you know, I hope that you utilize the Vector experience in the way that I did the opportunity, uh, not just to make some money or win some trips or some awards, but to become the person that you need to be by giving it everything you have and creating extraordinary results in Cutco that you then can utilize that experience to become the person that you need to be to create everything that you want for your life. That's awesome, Hal. Thank you so much. I appreciate having you. All right. Take care. This episode of Changing Lives, Selling Knives has shared some of the most life-changing concepts in this podcast series. In fact, the original release of this episode is topped out as the single highest downloaded episode ever. And if you enjoyed this, I ask you to take a moment right now to tap the five rating on your podcast player. Please do this now. Yeah, you. I know not all of you have done this yet as uh, some 5,000 different people have listened to this podcast at some point and uh, we don't have 5,000 ratings. So go in there and hit that five. Believe me, this helps spread the word about the podcast to many others. And if you're so inclined, I'd love to have you write a sentence or two about the podcast in the reviews on Apple Podcasts. This is a free resource provided to the extended Cutco Vector community. And my only ask is that you share this with others. Think of three people right now that could benefit from Hal's wisdom and inspiration and send this along to them today. I wish you all the best on your journey in life. I hope you're inspired to change lives. I know I am. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of Changing Lives, Selling Knives, hit the subscribe button so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. And if you want access to today's show notes, including links to any resources mentioned, visit changinglivespodcast.com. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. I'll catch you back here in a few days for our next story about changing lives.